This is episode 50, Life Hack, How to Talk About Death with Penny Smith. First, can you believe that we are on episode 50? Holy cow, that sounds really, really cool to say. And thank you for being here on this journey, whether this is your first time listening or you've listened to all 50. But either way, that feels really cool to say. And two, yes, we are talking about death today with Penny Smith, who is a hospice nurse, and I'll talk more about her shortly. But first, I want to share with you that I am hosting my first masterclass. Uh, it will be one week from the day this episode is released on August 31st. And the topic for this masterclass is inspired by the thing I hear from everyone who reaches out to me. And that's why am I so tired all the time? I just feel exhausted. I have no energy, no zest for life. So the title of the masterclass is Why Am I So Tired All the Time? Three Things That Are Keeping You From Feeling Energized and In Love With Life. And during the masterclass, I'll cover the three main reasons people feel tired all the time, how to apply this information to your life and create a personalized roadmap for healing, the importance of nutrition and supplementation when we're dealing with fatigue, simple and proven strategies for reclaiming your energy naturally, and also some exercises to overcome people-pleasing and perfectionism to support you in having more energy because that is also a common thread amongst my clients there is a tendency to to people please and there is a tendency toward perfectionism and this seems like maybe unrelated to your physical exhaustion however it's absolutely related there's a reason we call it the mind body connection so we have to address what's going on in our mind to also heal the physical body and vice versa so we're going to cover all of that it'll be a 90 minute masterclass on August 31st, the first hour will be education and information from me. And then the the last part of it, you'll be able to ask questions, get coaching live from me, and connect with your community. This is a time when we all feel a little bit isolated. So connecting with like-minded humans is really freaking important. So just show up join the masterclass. Registration is only $27. And if you can't attend, um, everyone who registers gets a copy of the replay. So no problem at all, but hopefully you can be there live. There will be a link to register and snag your ticket in the show notes. And if you have any questions, reach out. I'm here for you. And this class is really, really good for someone who's really ready to take responsibility for their health, but you're not sure where to start. And you're just really ready to say goodbye to that exhaustion and that fatigue and that depletion. And you are ready to wake up every day with your energy at a level 10 because we can get you there. It's possible. And this is like the first step, maybe the third or fourth, depending on where you are in your journey. But you need to arm yourself with the information so you know what to do. So I hope to see you there on August 31st at 6 p.m. Mountain Time, 8 p.m. Eastern. Now let's talk a little bit more about today's guest because you're in for a treat. Penny is well known for her educational and entertaining videos on TikTok and Instagram. So that's how I found her. I honestly don't remember how she came up in my algorithm, but I just saw a few of her videos and I was like, this person's amazing. And I thought it would be an interesting topic, death. I mean, it's not the most uplifting thing, but you'll actually find the way that Lauren, Penny, and I talk about death in this episode, it's really about diving in and finding hope and having death be the reason that you enjoy your now and you enjoy your life. So I think you'll learn a lot. We definitely share some takeaways and all the things that Penny has learned while working so closely with the dying. So if you are listening to this and maybe feel a little bit uncomfortable with the topic and the title, I invite you to acknowledge that discomfort and then dive right in anyway, because that's usually where the most learning can come from. When we feel really uncomfortable, that's where there's room for a breakthrough. So listen to this episode and then reach out to Lauren, reach out to myself, reach out to the There's a Hack for That Instagram and tell us one thing that you took away from this. Or if you really 
felt that you got something from this episode, share it with someone else who might enjoy it or share another episode. But either way, you are the way that our community grows. So by um, subscribing on your favorite platform or leaving a review or just reaching out to Lauren and I telling us that you're enjoying the show, one, it means the world, two, it helps us grow and we are forever grateful and appreciative for you. So now on to our conversation about how to talk about death with Penny Smith. Welcome, Penny. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. So I have to admit, I was trying to think before we started recording today, I was like, how did I originally find your social media? Because I found you on Instagram. And honestly, I think in the past, if I had come across it, I maybe would have just kept going. But I had just put one of my cats on a form of hospice before. And then all of a sudden your Instagram popped up and I think it was like, this is interesting. And I just started consuming your content and you're so, one, you're talking about a topic that can seem controversial, death. So that was enticing, but then also the way that you approach it as a nurse, you're just so caring and inviting. So I was excited to find you and excited that you're willing to come and speak to us about this today. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. It so, is kind of a controversial subject, and, and I uh, tend to – I have different education styles, too, on my Instagram and my TikTok, so that sometimes people are – they either love it or they hate it on some of the stuff that I, I do on there because I kind of take a controversial topic and make it even a little more controversial by putting it to an Instagram trend or a TikTok trend. <laughs> I love it, though. I think it makes it really accessible. It's a hard thing to talk about. I have a very close girlfriend of mine who is not a hospice nurse anymore, but she did it for a number of years. And the stories she would tell about these families and the people was really incredible. And it kind of provided her almost a spiritual awakening. Oh, yeah. Going through this process with people. And then I know two of my four grandparents were with hospice care before they passed and the family that got to experience that um, they're still friends with the hospice nurse that cared for both of my grandparents so it's I just I think it's super mm. important what you're doing and I like deep dive fell into a hole in your Instagram too because it like I said you make it so accessible and it it is controversial but it yeah, it shouldn't be like this is like inevitable. It's literally a guaranteed part of our lives. And so it's kind of like I'm approaching it and this conversation like the more you know, you know, like, let's make this not scary anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Knowledge is power. That's kind of my motto, you know, knowledge is power. And especially so, you know, I love, you know, hearing about the spiritual awakening because I don't think I know any hospice clinicians who haven't had that that experience. Mm -hmm. It was for me, and it also helped me with severe death anxiety that I used to suffer from before I became a hospice nurse. And I've really discovered that uh, by talking about death and dying, it has alleviated that for me and by being around it as a hospice nurse. But also now as I'm you know, educating about it on Instagram and TikTok, I have people that reach out to me and say that I am helping their death anxiety by teaching them about death and dying. Yeah, it's that kind of like uh, exposure therapy. Mm -hmm. Almost. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Well, and let's let's take a step back and hear your story about how you got to this point. Is becoming a hospice nurse something you always wanted? Did you fall into it? How did you get here? Well, no, it's not actually. So I did not become a nurse until I was 42 years old. My ex-husband and I decided to get divorced. I had been a stay-at-home homeschooling mom and I needed a career. And so I decided to become a nurse. And shortly before that time, his stepmother had cancer and died on hospice. And she was in a hospice care center and I went to see her there and I was just blown away by the nurses. I just was so impressed with them. And so when I decided to become a nurse, I, I said, you know, I either want to work in a skilled nursing facility. At that time, there was a lot of stories about abuse that was going on in skilled nursing facilities. And it was either that or hospice because I wanted to work in a position that was going to really make a difference for people. So uh, 
graduating from nursing school and I was an LPN to start. I worked in a clinic for a year and then I switched over to a hospital. And during that time, my ex-husband and I got divorced. I started dating someone new, my current husband actually. And uh, I noticed there was a hospice care center that was being built in his neighborhood. And I was driving by there one day and I said to him, I'm going to become an RN so that I can go work at that hospice care center. Well, I went to the hospital and worked there for a couple months. And hospitals are, they have a cyclical process of laying off LPNs. And I just happened to be there during that cycle and was laid off. And I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to go check it out at that care center and see if they're hiring there. And sure enough, they were. And so I, I started working in that care center and worked with the most amazing hospice nurse ever. I call her the hospice goddess. She was six feet tall and just amazing. I learned everything I know about death and dying from her. (laughs) And then during my time over the years, I uh, went back to school, got my RN, got my BSN, became certified in hospice and palliative nursing. I worked in inpatient setting for seven years. I went into home hospice and was a case manager for four years. And then I went into hospice quality and education, which is actually what I do now. So I'm now a, uh, for a a large hospice agency, I am a quality manager and I I do a lot with regulatory stuff and uh, policies and education and I participate in complex case reviews and I have actually worked in our care center for a short period of time for a while and so I, I like to really learn everything I can about a subject and so that's kind of what led me to where I'm at now and now being able to also use the knowledge that I've gained not only through nursing, but through what I've learned about Medicare and regulation to be able to really educate people on my on my social media platforms about hospice and what they can expect if they're using a Medicare certified hospice agency. Mm-hmm. And it certainly seems like you ended up in the right place because again, like we said before, you just have a beautiful way of diving into the, all the information that comes along with this. And I think maybe it's important as well to just take a moment to define hospice. I know that I had my preconceived notions of what it was before I started following you and then learned, I've learned a lot since following you. But what is hospice? Why would someone choose to enroll in hospice? How did, like, Is it just about making someone comfortable before they die or is there more to it? Well, that's kind of the highest level um, explanation for hospice is that it's comfort care. People love to say it's comfort care. So first of all, to qualify for hospice, a person needs to have a terminal diagnosis with a life expectancy of six months or less, and they can outlive that and we can keep them on service if they continue to meet that criteria. But, you know, we we do so much. It's it's really whole person care. It's not just about managing symptoms, which we are experts at, but it's also about um, helping people to achieve their end-of-life goals. And we have a whole team. We have a hospice aide who will help with personal care. We have a social worker who helps with any kind of resources they need or helping them f- navigate through financial stuff or how to pick out a funeral home. We have chaplains for spiritual care. And I love to emphasize that it's for spiritual care because so many people immediately start to think that chaplains are for religious care and they'll reject the chaplain and that's not what it's about. We have volunteers. Mm -hmm. We do everything from symptom management to providing grief support to the family after the patient has died. One of our, our Our big goals is to help the person remain in their home, whatever their home may be. And their home could be, I like to say their home could be in a house, it could be in a skilled nursing facility, or it could be in a van down by the river. Basically, we do whatever we can to ensure that that person gets to stay in what environment that they consider their home. And a lot of that involves teaching their family how to be caregivers because we don't do 24-7 care. We aren't in the home 24 hours a day. We go in, um, we do definitely do hands-on care, and then we train the family on how to take care of their loved one and what to expect as that person changes and moves closer to the dying process and what to do once they've died, and then we help them after the death with our grief support services. So we do a lot for people. I never thought about the whole training the family thing until my family went through it. 
and my aunt was like the primary caretaker for my grandmother and it's like she has a a a health care background too but when you're the family member of the person who's dying it's a totally different thing because it triggers all kinds of stuff you know like family dynamics and all kinds of things so that's just such a huge piece of it that I would have never thought of yeah when my dad went on hospice and my dad was literally on hospice for about 10 hours I I tried to get him on hospice earlier than that but the providers at the hospital kept thinking they were going to resolve his issues and they didn't and so we finally got him on hospice uh, and he died later that night. But I remember sitting, and I had been a hospice nurse for five years at that time. I remember sitting with the uh, liaison speak with us. She worked for a different agency than I worked for. So I, I didn't know her. And I remember sitting there and thinking to myself, how come I, how come this is going over my head? Like, why don't I, you know, it was like, it was Greek to me what she was saying. And then when my dad died for years, I kept thinking, how did I not see that coming. You know, we planned on taking him home from the hospital the next day and I was going to be his nurse. And I just kept thinking, how did I not see that coming? How did I not know he was going to die that quickly? Mm-hmm. And he died very quickly and, and that doesn't usually happen. I mean, people usually have a, they slip into the state of unresponsiveness and then they slip away. And for him, it was more of a sudden death. And, and that does occur not as often. So I was, it was, it was, it was really different for me, you know, even being a very experienced hospice nurse. And so it was, it was really different. Hmm. Yeah. And I like what you said about just the whole person care, the holistic approach, because that's something I hadn't thought about because it's true. It's not just like, okay, here's what to expect. Let's just make you comfortable. But it's like, you can still have life. Like it's not, you, enrolling in hospice is not the death sentence whether it, I mean, okay, maybe it's 10 hours or a few months or whatever, but there's still a chance to experience things you want to experience, I guess. We love to say that hospice is uh, not just about dying, it's about living. Mm. You know, we, we want to help people to have their best life in light of the circumstances. We do everything that we can to help them, whatever their goals are, you know, their goals may just be to be able to be in their home and not have any pain, but they might have goals. Like uh, I had a guy that wanted to walk his daughter down the aisle. I've had patients who actually got married in our hospice care center, one who renewed her vows with her husband. You know, everybody has their own different things, their bucket list that they want to do at the end of life. And we help them to achieve that. Yeah, that's beautiful. And earlier in the beginning of the episode, we already touched on this a little bit. So let's go back to it because one of the things you do on your social media is you normalize the idea of death. And like Lauren says, like this is the only absolute, like one of the only absolutes in our life, right? That one day we will die. And what are the benefits of or how do people start to make peace with death long before it's staring in the face? Because, you know, I could easily be like, I'm young, I'm really healthy, and that's kind of the last thing on my mind. But what are the benefits of maybe just like realizing that death is imminent? Well, because you're young and you probably think you're going to live a long time and you may or you may not. We never know, but you have probably friends or family or even pets that are going to die, right? And so, you know, it's beneficial to understand that, you know, that nobody does get out of here alive and and to accept that. And, you know, when I say normalize death, it's really uh, a lot about normalizing dying process and death. And the reason for that is because when a person expects what's going to happen and they know, you know, like they know what to expect, there is so much more opportunity for them to embrace the time that they have, either if they're that person that's dying or if they're the family of that person or the loved ones of that person to embrace that time and to really be able to be there and honor them and say goodbye and have closure. And, you know, the other thing too is I, so many times when I've been with a family and they see things that are terrifying to them that their loved one is going through. And as soon as I say to them, Oh, that's normal. You can just, you can see the relief that comes over them. I mean, it's palpable. They, they, 
the fear just disappears. It's normal. Yeah, that's normal. We see it all the time. You know, so it just really helped to remove the fear when you normalize that not only does it happen to everybody, but there's a process that people go through and those things that are happening are normal and you don't need to call 911 and you don't need to take them to the hospital. And some of these Mm -hmm. things that happen, for example, the death rattle is one that family members get very, very concerned about. They're always worried that if their loved one has the death rattle, which is kind of the gurgling or rattling noise that a person can make at the end of life, that they're going to drown in those secretions. And so normalizing that for them, like this is normal. They're just not swallowing. It's just spit in the airway. They're just breathing and making a noise and it's not causing them any discomfort. You know, it's like, you know, they can can relax and they know that that it's not something that's harming their loved one. It's so interesting, people who don't have uh, any healthcare background, we just know so little about the human body and how it works and how it expires. And we barely even know very much about how it's born or created, I feel like, as just like a normal general population. So it is so great that you are that person, you're that voice that's like, no, 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 this is normal. You know, it's most people have never watched someone die. So we literally have no life experience to know any of these things. And it's not something that's portrayed very much in, in entertainment or media or movies or TV. So we have no idea. It's certainly not portrayed accurately. Well, there's that too. <laughs> you know, if I'm watching a show, always is not real life, <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, there will be times when I'll be watching a show and I'll say to my husband, "Oh, that actually looks pretty good. They did a good job. That person does look dead." You know, and he's just like, <laughs> "Oh man." <laughs> but yeah, they're they're starting to get a little better, I think. But you know, what's so? And I actually did a video about what does a dead person look like because people are so surprised mm. when they see their loved one who's dead and they don't expect. They think the eyes are going to be closed, the mouth will be closed, the hands will be crossed over the chest, they're going to look peaceful, and that's really not what a person usually looks like when they die. They have their mouth open, they have their eyes open or partially open, you know, it's, they look very different when they're, when they're dead, and that in and of itself can, can promote a lot of fear in people. When my dad died, my, my daughters were teenagers, young teenagers. And I said, I want you to come and see what he looks like. I want you to know, you know, I gave them the option. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to, but I would like for you to be able to experience, you know, what a a dead person looks like. I wasn't, I never saw a dead body until I was 40 years old. And that was, that wasn't my mother-in-law who had died. It was, uh, well, my stepmother-in-law, but my Right around the time my stepmother-in-law died, my mother-in-law actually died as well. She was in the hospital um, when she died. And she was the first person I had ever seen who was dead. And and so my whole life up until that point, you know, and that probably is what led to a lot of my death anxiety was not knowing even what does a dead body look like? You know, you have this fear and then seeing her and going, oh, that wasn't so bad. You know, it's, it just kind of like, oh, that's, that's normal. That's natural. That's how people look when they die. Yeah. I, I was in the hospital room when both my, my, both my grandmas died and both of them were kind of like a long drawn out thing. Like we slept at the hospital and, you know, eventually was done. So there was like also this, you know, when it happened, that feeling, almost like a feeling of relief knowing that they're not suffering anymore and that it's over. And then I remember just being where I was, like, I was so worried about my mom and my dad. And so then I was like, oh, now I feel like they can move on and be at peace now that my grandparents are at peace. And that was an interesting. Actually, I have, a, I have a random question maybe for both of you, but like as children, do you remember your first experience with understanding what death was or when that was brought up? I do. I do. I'd love to hear. So I wasn't very close to my grandparents because my dad's parents lived in Texas and my mom's parents lived in Canada. So I didn't really grow up close to my grandparents. But I remember we had taken a trip to see my grandfather in Canada and he lived in a nursing home. And maybe a year after that, he died. And so my mom tried to explain what death was to me. And and. I think now we do a better job of explaining death to children than we probably did back Mm -hmm. in those days because 
it used to be like you go to sleep and you never wake up. Well, that just terrifies a kid. Right. But I, I, I distinctly remember at some point getting out of bed and going into the living room and crying and telling my mom I was so upset because I was afraid that she was going to die because I had this understanding from my grandfather's death that when, when, when someone dies, they're gone. And so I remember her saying to me, try not to think about it. Think about flowers instead. So I went back to bed and then I came back out and I said, if I think about flowers, it just makes me think about cemeteries. And if I think about cemeteries, it just makes me think about you dying. So that was my, that's, that's what I remember about my first experience with, you know, people with death. That was my experience. That's probably why I had death anxiety my whole entire life almost. Sounds accurate. <laughs> I was one of those kids that's been kind of obsessed with death. Like I would go catch animals and fish in the in the creek behind my house and dissect them. And biology was my favorite class. And like I was just kind of a dark kid that way. I don't remember. I guess my my dad's dad was the first like family death that I was like I knew the person we'd had other family members die, but like, I just never felt really phased by it. But I've also been one of those people that was like really aware of my mortality. I've suffered with depression, anxiety. I've been suicidal before. So like death doesn't scare me, which is an interesting, don't know if I've ever said this out loud. So here it is podcast. <laughs> so, but I also understand and have always known I don't even know that I had language for it before that this is a vehicle that I'm living in and it will expire just like plants don't live forever. And unless you're like a sequoia, but like, I just like had this like very like knowing understanding that this is just like a temporary thing and everything dies. And funny enough, every funeral I've ever been to, I've performed at, I'm a singer. So like all my friends, parents who have died that I've been, close to I have performed at so now it's like I have this persona that is part of the process and I provide some kind of like I'll call it comfort but to me it feels like entertainment to the procession that happens afterward so I haven't I don't know if it's unusual it's probably not that unusual but I've never really thought about it as something that's a negative thing it's just like yeah that happens to everybody are you okay (laughs) And there's a lot of similarities, some similarities with how I feel about it too. My first experience with death was I was in elementary school and at my elementary school, when you were in kindergarten, you got paired up with a sixth grader and they were called your kind buddy and you like, you know, saw them once a week or whatever. And, and then when I was a little bit older and I think her name was Kim, maybe I'm not sure, but she was maybe in middle school or high school and she was in a car crash and died. And I think my mom ended up taking me to the funeral. But I remember when she told me and she was kind of like, you know, she, she passed away. This is what happened. And then I was, and I remember just listening and then she was like, are you, are you okay? And I remember kind of feeling confused and being like, yeah, like, you know, cause like understanding, okay, she's, she's gone and not coming back. But same with, same with you, Lauren. Like, I think when I was younger, there was like either a detachment or just like, maybe it was not really understanding it. But even now to this day, like, it's very, very sad when my grandparents died, you know, it was very sad. There's loss. I mean, putting my cat to sleep was like, that was another like reintroduction to death. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what does this really mean? But at the same time with you, I think maybe it's because of the past with depression and, and being at points in my life where it was like, well, if that happened, would that be so bad? And and so there is like that emotional detachment of like death. It's it's sad and this and that, but it but it just is what it is. So I think that's interesting that Lauren, you and I have such that's a, a great question though. I'm really glad you asked that. <laughs> it is. It just popped in. It's, it is. Like <laughs> I don't know. I would have never thought about it. Yeah. Anyway, let's Let's shift gears a little bit, maybe get a little spiritual, a little supernatural, 
One of the things I've seen you make some videos about are the idea of someone when they're close to the end having either hallucinations or deathbed visions. Is that what we call them? Yeah, visions. visions. We call them we call them visions, not necessarily deathbed okay. because they happen prior. You know, they can happen weeks before a person dies. Okay. So, so, can you share maybe some stories or anecdotes about that, and then what the difference? between a hallucination versus a vision might be? Sure. So, well, first of all, a hallucination is typically caused by medication or some kind of brain involvement, like with a brain tumor. It could be caused by hypoxia. So if a person has a respiratory disease and they have a lack of oxygen, it can cause that. Hallucinations are typically going to be something that is really off the wall and and usually going to cause more distress for the person that's experiencing them. So I really remember one of my patients telling me that he had been really upset the night before because he could see spiders coming out of the ceiling. And his wife told me, you know, that he was really Mm. agitated and kept saying there's spiders coming out of the ceiling. So we typically will try to get to the underlying cause of those hallucinations. And usually we end up giving medication for that. We use haloperidol is probably one of the most common medications that we use. It's an antipsychotic. It works really great. A vision is always, the theme of a vision is always either a deceased loved one or a deceased pet that a person is seeing. It's never usually something that causes the person who's seeing it to feel anxious or upset. It can upset the family because they think that person is hallucinating and they, you know, like something's wrong. Because it's always a deceased loved one or pet, it's really difficult for hospice providers or families who witness it to just dismiss it because it's the same. It's the same for all dying people who talk about it. It's ne- it's it's not some random thing. It's always a deceased loved one or a pet. So we actually see this so often that we consider that a sign that somebody's getting closer to the end of life when they start visioning. And sometimes, you know, we don't know about it. They either don't don't tell us or we don't ask the Mm -hmm. right questions. I always say, you know, if your loved one didn't tell you they weren't seeing them, you probably didn't ask the right questions or they just weren't sharing that information with you. So one, one story I have is, and it's really my favorite one, and you may have seen me talk about it on TikTok, uh, or Instagram, but I had a patient and he was at our care center and his wife had died a year before he did. And I was at the nurse's station and his room was next to the nurse's station. And I heard him yelling out a woman's name. And I walked in and I said, and he was yelling, Inga, Inga, Inga. And I walked into his room and he was looking to the corner of his room. And often they're looking up or looking to the corner. That's that's also really common. And he's crying. He's got tears coming down his face and he's crying, Inga, Inga. And I said to him, is Inga your wife? And he said, yes, she's right there. I see her. I see her. And I said, is she coming to, to get you? And he said, yes, but not today, tomorrow. And I, I thought, well, that's pretty specific, you know, but he didn't die the next day. And actually he died a, a day after that. And his caregiver who had taken care of his wife and him for the year, for a year, or a couple years, came in to pick up his belongings. And I said to her, you know, I told her the story and she said, well, it was always like Inga to be late. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's so funny. I had another one too that it's really fascinating. I was floating on the weekend and the patient was admitted on a Friday and I went to see her on Saturday and Sunday. She was with her daughter and she was transitioning really quickly. So transitioning is a phase that people go through at the end of life. So I was spending a lot of time with the daughter kind of explaining to her, you know, how to take care of her, what to expect. And she died, the patient died on Sunday night, and she wasn't even going to be my patient, but the daughter felt the need to call me on Monday and really wanted to share with me what had happened with her mom. She explained to me that her mom was in the bed, and she started describing windows in front of her with different pieces of times of her life in these windows. And then she motioned to her chest with her hands like she was kind of like stroking her chest with her hands and said to her daughter, do I need this? 
And the daughter said, your hospital gown? And she said, no, this. And she was pointing to the skin on her body. And her, mm. and her daughter said, no, you don't need that anymore. And so mm. it was like she was asking her, am I going to need this anymore, my body? And then she died shortly after that. That's I'm amazing. Like, I'm like, I know. I'm, I like need a moment of silence. Hold on. I need to absorb this. You're such a good storyteller too, the way that you share, like you paint such a good picture. <sighs> what are some of the most common questions you get, whether it's from your patients or patients' family? or your social media following? What are what are some que- burning questions that people have for a hospice nurse? <laughs> well, a lot of people ask me, is there life after death? And I'm not sure why they ask me that because I don't know. <laughs> I'm not dead yet. <laughs> I don't know I'll, yet. So I maybe I'll back try to, to report. Maybe I'll try to signal you when, I, when I'm gone, but yeah. I get that one a lot. I get, I get concerns about why don't people want to eat or should we feed them? That's a, that's a, a big important question. Why don't we do hydration at the end of life? That's another another one that people ask. Mm-hmm. Is there concern about somebody becoming addicted to opioids if we treat them with morphine? Um, those are questions I get. Oh, uh, another one that's really common is why, you know, my, my dad did not wait until I was there to die. Why didn't my dad wait? Or why didn't I make it on time? Why should, I could have left sooner and I didn't. Why did, why did they die when I wasn't there? That's a really common one. And, you know, it, it, people tend to have a way of choosing their time of death. We see it all the time where a patient is, you know, the family's holding vigil. The patient is hanging in there and the family steps out and the patient dies. So it's really, really common for that to happen. Especially I've noticed it with moms. It's almost like moms don't want their kids to see them die. And so that's really common. Mm. Well, I imagine that thinking about it that way, it's as the living, as the survivors, we, we feel like somebody's death is about us. Oh yeah. When It's their experience. Like the person who's dying is having this quote once in a lifetime experience that like we will never get to hear about. Like, so we're having an experience while they're having an experience. Like we want to make it about us. But if I mean, like I'm always about reframing things. So when I think of like one of my very closest friends died by suicide about a year and a half ago, and I was so relieved for her. Because I knew what her pain was. so And I had to really realize that I was having an experience about her death. But she got to experience death. And that is like a totally separate thing. So I was no longer like, why did she do this? And why did that? And blah, blah, blah. It was like, that's hers. This is mine. Mm -hmm. But that's a hard separation to have. Like, you have to do that with so much intention. Absolutely. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, and it's probably you know, way up there on the list of what makes uh, a dying experience bad for a family when they cannot see through their own trauma to try to do what's best for the person who's dying and they choose medical interventions to keep someone alive, you know, artificially forever without considering the quality of life or lack thereof for the person who's going through that. So yeah, I mean, people definitely tend to make it about themselves, you know, and I'll have uh, nurses reach out to me and say, how do you cope? How do you keep yourself from from crying when somebody, you know, when your patient dies and, you know, I say, it's okay to be sad, but you have to remember something. You're a nurse. This is your job. You're going to work to take care of this person and their family. And then you're leaving it there because this is not about you. It's about them. You're just doing your job, you know, and I I think that's really important to be able to, to acknowledge, you know, to be able to work in this, in this field. Otherwise, if you get too wrapped up in it, you know, you're never going to survive. You have to be able to separate yourself from that. Yeah. And what keeps coming up for me is just the resistance around it that creates that negative experience. So for the family, it's like resisting the fact that death is happening. And instead just being able to, Lauren, I think that was such a beautiful way to describe it, slipping into acceptance and realizing that 
we can put our lens of our own trauma and whatever on what's happening, or we can intentionally separate and say, well, what was their experience? What is their experience? What's best for them? And this isn't about me. Stay in my own lane. So mm. I think that's really important. And there's a, pre- a relatively famous book. I think it's pretty well known. It's called The Top Five Regrets of a Dying. I think they're um, by Bronnie Ware. Have either of you read it? I have not. So it's really good and I highly recommend it. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But she is a hospice caregiver. I think she is Australian. And she wrote a book about the top five regrets that just kept popping up for all of her patients over the span of the time that she was a hospice nurse or caregiver. I'm not sure if she was an, if she's a nurse. Anyway, so I was curious to ask you this question, Penny, because – I imagine, and we're we're titling the episode Lessons Learned from a Hospice Nurse. So what are some either just spiritual awakenings, lessons, things that your patients have taught you over the years that seem to be, there seems to be like some common themes and threads. So is there anything that stands out for you? Well, for me, and it's not something that a patient has ever said, but the spiritual awakening was just in being present with people when they were dying and watching them go through the dying process and visioning. And I had a patient one time who was in his early 40s, and he he was really struggling. He had lung cancer. He had nobody with him at the time. And the aide and I were each standing on one side of the bed. I'd given him as much medication as I I could. I knew that it was just beyond what medication was going to touch. He was just young and he was struggling. Mm -hmm. And he, all of a sudden he looked up at the ceiling and he just had this peace that washed over his face. It was just, you could just see peace wash over his face. And then he died. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it just really made me realize that there, there's just, a lot of peace at the moment of death. When somebody dies, there is peace. A non-traumatic death, obviously. I remember another thing that that really has stayed with me forever is that I had a, a young woman, a patient who was dying of colon cancer, and she was Catholic. Her parents were devout Catholics, and she had divorced her husband and remarried. And her mother could not it passed that. And she would say to me, is, is this, is she dying because of this? Did she, she went against God. She, you know, like, is this why she's dying? And finally, one day I just said to her, you know, sometimes young people just die and there's no reason for it. There's no reason for that. We don't, she wasn't a bad person. It's not about her doing something bad. She's just dying. And that's really all it is. It doesn't matter like how you live your life. You're just still going to die in the end either way. And when you die, you just, you don't get away from, you know, it happening to you because you're a better person than someone else, you know, you're just not. So that's kind of uh, some of the things I've, I've, I haven't real, it's really interesting that, Mm -hmm. and I'd love to read that book. I probably will. Because someone, I was doing a, a live TikTok uh, with another hospice nurse the other day, and somebody asked us that, you know, what have your patients regretted? People do ask that question. Have you, what have your patients told you that they've regretted? And I'll be honest, and she said the same thing. I have not really had a lot of patients who have said, I have yeah. regrets. They're too busy dying. They're too busy trying to enjoy the rest of their life to start perseverating on what they didn't do Mm -hmm. in their life. It's more about what they can do now that they have this limited time left. The only, and she said the same thing. She said, yeah, nothing sticks out for me. I cannot remember. And I've never asked a person like, what do you regret? I've asked them, how did you live so long? Uh, But I've never said to to anybody like, what are your regrets? Because I don't want to go there with someone like, I don't want to be like a Debbie Downer, like, what are your regrets? You know, I, I just don't want to do that to someone. But I did have one patient who did tell me his regret, and it's probably not something you would have expected, but he told me that he regretted getting chemotherapy. He said, I never should have done chemotherapy. I It's been three weeks. I've been sick the whole time. It did not make me live mm-hmm. any longer. I, I regret it. I never should have done it. And he died that afternoon. So he literally told me the morning of his death that he never should have done chemotherapy. And that's, yeah, that's the only one. I've heard that before from friends and families. It's like it kind of steals mm-hmm. the, la- the potentially the last few weeks if 
because chemo is toxic. Yeah, it's like it's trying poison. to heal you. I mean, but it's it, killing off cells. It's miserable. I'd have a hard time deciding to have chemotherapy if I had cancer. You know, I'd I'd need to do a lot of research. I've had many many patients who underwent chemotherapy. It didn't prolong their life, or if it did, it didn't prolong it by much, and they really suffered because of the ill effects. And I have had patients who did undergo chemotherapy and they lived for, you know, several years before they came to hospice. So it's, it's going to be different for everybody. It depends on the type of cancer you're treating as well. Yeah. I have a lot of family members that have gone through that with different kinds of results, but I feel like you don't necessarily hear the stories of the ones that went through it and really regretted it or, you know, didn't do anything for them. Or also maybe you're just not, you know, I'm not looking for those stories. So a whole, a whole different topic. But yeah, I think, and actually, as you were speaking, I was thinking about that book, which I still highly recommend, but now I'm, I'm wondering if maybe she wasn't a hospice nurse, but she was just a caregiver for elderly. So maybe I think she had like because I think with some people, she had a year, like a long time with them to really hear, get to know them and hear their story. And she lived in their homes. Um, but some of the regrets were like, I wish I had spoken up more. I wish I had worked less, like stuff like that. But it's, it's a really powerful book. And she, like you, she's also a really good storyteller. So I still, I still recommend it. Yeah. Well, this has been, I think, a really powerful conversation. I think it's, just like we said before, being able to accept death and know that it's something that happens and we don't have to be scared of it, that once once you make that switch, you can start living your life. Because if you can live like you know you're going to die, I mean, I you know, people say versions of that all the time, but I think that's a big thing for me. It's like, well, it's going to happen, but I might as well make the best of what's happening now until it does and not worry whether it's tomorrow or, you know, 50 years from now. So I appreciate you having this conversation in the open. Right. <laughs> this is going to be one of those that sits with yeah. me for a few days. No, we have to think about. We have those conversations. <laughs> We've had many interviews like that, but this is I I'm so grateful that you shared yourself and your vulnerability with us because you are doing like divine work and it's really important. In so many and ways. It's not just it, it's and it, even if we're the ones that are the ones that say it to you and we're you know people who found you online and wanted to interview you it really is like divinity work and it's super important and I'm grateful that you found this for yourself yeah and not just the education that you're doing for people but literally being someone who's who helps people pass you know I I have my beliefs I believe that we have many lifetimes and you're helping these spirits go on to the next one so they can fill out the, fulfill their karmic debt and learn their lessons and all those things. And I think it's so cool, yeah, to be able to get to talk to you. And one thing that we ask all of our guests on a completely unrelated note, what is your all-time favorite life hack? And it can be related to something like this or it can be completely unrelated to the topic. So I thought about that, you know, when you reached out to me and said you were going to ask me that, and I thought, God, what is my life hack? And I actually, <laughs> I do have one, and it's it's embracing survival mode. Uh -huh. So, you know, we go through things in our life that are, you know, tough times or stressful times. I've been through many, many stressful times in my life. I mean, it could be something like uh, my stepdaughter's a meth addict and, you know, abandoned my granddaughter and that happened. Or it could be my husband and I are selling our house and moving to our off-grid cabin. You know, it's stressful things. And so I go into survival mode. I tell myself, you know, it's okay to not be okay. And if that means I need to take a nap in the middle of the day, or I need to eat junk food today, or I need to go to the casino, you know, and blow off some steam, you know, as long as I'm not doing something that's harmful to myself or others, you know, my husband and I quit drinking a while back. And so I don't like to try to cope with alcohol or drugs, as long as it's something that's, you know, not going to harm me, then it's okay. It's okay to be in survival mode and to do whatever you need to do just to get through, you know, your day or your week or whatever it is. And and that's my life hack. I love it. 
It's okay to not be okay. Thank you for that permission. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, Penny, you're on TikTok and Instagram. Is there a a one you prefer to connect with people over others? Where where should the people find you? You know, uh, wherever, uh, wherever, whatever platform they prefer to use. I I like Instagram because messaging is a lot easier through DMs on Mm. Instagram. Mm -hmm. I always tell people if they want to follow me on Instagram and they want to DM me with a question or if they want to share a story with me, I always will get back to people within a day or two if they DM me. And I'm Penny underscore the underscore nurse on Instagram. On TikTok, my platform's a little, bit more there's a little more like political influence on that platform uh it's a little bit more less pg rated i guess you know like i swear a little bit more on that platform so it's (laughs) it's more adult content and on that platform i'm nurse underscore penny unfortunately somebody on instagram already had nurse penny and she never goes on and so she doesn't see my message that says hey if you're not going to use this would you please give it to me so i have two two different usernames but but either or both platforms work for me Beautiful. And we will put all of that in the show notes. And if you're making it to the end, I assume you're already going to go follow her, but definitely do. It's She's entertaining, but also educational. So you'll definitely love it. And if you did love the episode, please head to your favorite podcast platform and rate and review. It really helps the the podcast grow and, and helps us know what you're loving. So Thank you for that. And don't forget to stay curious. curious. Disclaimer. This podcast is produced for your universal listening pleasure. Any statements shared during our program are opinions and experiences of our team and guests. If you disagree with any content presented herein, please find another show before submitting nasty grams. This is a positive vibes only platform. If you love our show and want to connect, share your experiences or know someone who we should interview on future episodes, please don't hesitate to get in touch through our website or Instagram. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.